There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for another episode of Entrepreneurial Stories, Tips and Advice. And today we're talking about the art of business persuasion, communicating a message and translating a sale as I'm joined by two business people renowned for their ability to put products, brands and ideas in the limelight. So joining me in the studio, I'm really happy to welcome an ad man notoriously called out as the worst graduate trainee ever hired. 20 odd years later, you might be surprised to learn he's still at the same company, now installed as vice chairman and admired around the world as one of the advertising's greatest intellects. An inspirational speaker, a master of behavioural economics and technology lover. I am, of course, talking about Rory Sutherland, VC at Global Advertising Force Ogilvy and Mather Group. Great to have you here, Rory, and hello. Hello there. So today, Ogilvy and Mather Group is made up of 10 companies across the world, in London alone employing 1,800 people in a range of specialisms. If you were to explain in a nutshell how the company operates today and your role within that, sum it up for me. What would I suppose distinguish us from most is that from the very beginning, we were kind of... Um, I hate the phrase media neutral, but we were solution neutral from the very early days. David Ogilvy, our founder, uh, very early on invested in companies in PR, companies in, in fact, in companies in research for that matter. Um, uh, he was an early enthusiast of direct marketing and had he lived long enough, would have been a very early enthusiast about internet marketing. So from the very beginning, we were a company that kind of covered the waterfront. And I think, you know, that was probably a lesser distinguishing feature in 1975 when most marketing activity, certainly at the large scale level, was just mass media advertising. And it's brought us, um, I, I suppose, unexpectedly large advantages now when the media environment's fragmented considerably. And probably, I suppose, yeah, I mean, maybe half the people in our business now have job titles that didn't exist 25 years ago. And joining us in the studio too, I'm really happy to welcome a young entrepreneur working at the forefront of new ways brands interface with disruptive technology. At only 21 years old, he's impressively now CEO of his third successful company with a client list including the likes of Adidas, Nickelodeon and Disney, certainly no mean feat, called Fanbytes and working to connect brands with social influencers, a.k.a. huge audiences on the likes of YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. A very warm welcome to founder Timothy Armu. Good day to you. Good day to you too. So, so that is a, a social influencer. That's what you've been called. The new frontier of advertising in a sense. Can you unpack that for people listening who might want to know exactly what Fanbytes does? So... 
Thanks for having me here, first of all. Um, what we do as a company is we essentially have built software which helps these brands to be able to collaborate with people with incredibly large audiences across YouTube and Snapchat specifically. So when you think about what a brand was typically used to, a brand was typically used to, you know, let's kind of create an ad and let's send it out on mass market. It's not exactly a personalized thing. It's not exactly native. But then you have the emergence of, you know, these 18, 19, in some cases, 15 year olds who from their bedroom are able to influence hundreds of thousands, millions of people. If a brand is able to partner up with someone like that, who can put their name to it, you have a very personalized, targeted and native story to the audience. So effectively, brands come to us because they realize the power of that personalization, the power of that nativeness in their advertising. So if we looked at um, something as mind atrophying as reality TV, keeping up with the Kardashians, that would be some way that people could relate to the fact that you, knowing that Kim Kardashian has however many million followers on yeah. Instagram or Snapchat, you could then hook her up with a brand who comes to you first? I mean, yeah. how does it work? So it's software that literally does the whole thing. So a brand will come on and say, hey, we'd like to you know, target this audience across you know, age, gender, location. And the software that we've built is able to then actually get the best people for that. They create content and they spread out to the audience. So it's a whole software play as opposed to it being a very kind of manual play. So it's an algorithm in a sense. Yeah, so not only that, but... We've also built this kind of measure of a person's influence as well, which is helping a ton of brands to be able to like find the influential people. So you take an example of like Warner Brothers, right? Warner, let's say they have, you know, a film. I don't know if they own Harry Potter, but let's say they do, right? Mm-hmm. Through our software, they can find like the most influential Harry Potter fans in the world and get them to like push out their trailer or something, which leads to, you know, fascinating results for them in terms of you know views and tickets being sold etc so would you say then today that it's not enough really to run your own social media and content channels you need to tap into these super influencers yeah definitely i think that the interesting thing about social was essentially people took the same metrics they use when they did typical kind of direct marketing things like cpms hey let's get as many impressions as we want and that stuff however what's happening is as we see the emergence of these influences that kind of let's just take what we did offline you know newspaper as tv as and let's just put that online that increasingly i think is is beginning to get washed away so rory you're Alyssa, you're sitting here looking at this and And I wonder what's going through your mind from the time that you started in the advertising industry. This is a real shift away from blatant in-your-face advertising. Um, Yes and no. Very interesting thing, because it is entirely new. I Mm. mean, when I started advertising in 1988, uh, the internet did exist, but I mean, it was before the World Wide Web and 99% of people wouldn't have known what it was. (laughs) But... What you're talking about is interesting because, in some ways, social influencers have always existed. If you look at sort of Pear's soap advertising from 1905, it will say something like Lady Letitia Manners, who I suppose, in a way, was the Kim Kardashian of 1905. You know, a society beauty, Lady Letitia Manners, always uses Pear's soap and no other. 
Okay. Now, what you would have done then is you would have had an advertisement featuring Lady Letitia yeah. Manners, who mm. was the influencer mm. or the person who gave credibility to the claim. And then you would have had a separate media owner, which let's just say the Times or a poster owner, in which you would have placed the ad. Mm -hmm. What's changed here and what you've spotted very clearly is mm -hmm. that Strangely, the media owner and the social influencer are now one and the same. Yeah. Right. Because by dint of being an influencer or an influential commentator on some area, in the internet world, you almost become a media owner by default because you acquire your own audience. Mm. Yeah. So the advertiser doesn't have to go through Rupert Murdoch to rent attention. He can go straight to Lady Letitia Manners slash Kim Kardashian and get both the audience and the influence. So it is both very old... The principles of persuasion at work here are quite old, which is someone who is credible, um, you know, a Kardashian, um, how credible they might be, but, <laughs> but on certain issues, you know, whether it be a cosmetics brand or a jewellery brand or whatever, um, uh, you know, is particularly credible in that area, certainly to my daughters, who seem to think that the sun shines out of their capacious asses. Um, <laughs> they're particularly credible in, in, in that field, but they also have audience. I think the word is calipigious for their asses. Thank by you, the way. thank you, thank yes, you. Yes, my pleasure. Um, the other interesting thing, and you've spotted this as well, is that, I mean, you've always been able to buy an audience by interest group. There have been specialist print publications around for hundreds of years. If you want to reach anglers, there are angling magazines and so forth. But what's quite interesting now is I think your software is providing you with a way of finding out who owns the audience mm. yeah. and the influence. So you're buying, in a sense, it used to be that influence and persuasive power and audience were kind of almost two separate metrics, and you've actually, you've bundled them into one. And in yeah. a way, Tim, can I call you Tim? And yeah, not, sure, go. So in a way, Tim, I gave a really obvious... Uh, example with the Kardashians and also a, a slightly outmoded one in some ways because they began their career on television whereas where you're looking for so your daughters you have twins don't you yeah so your twins might well know who the Kardashians are but the likelihood is they're on YouTube looking for the much cooler beauty vloggers people like that would your would your software pick those girls Yeah, up? so we tend to focus on those kind of people. I think that what we're also starting to see now is the increase in people going to people who they can relate to the most, right? So, you know, a Kardashian for all her airs and graces, it's very hard to relate to a Kardashian if you're like a 15-year-old, 16-year-old yeah. girl. So the best people are, you know, the 16-year-old girl who's, you know, come back from school and, and now she's telling her audience about her day. So, so she's just making little vlogs yeah. of herself, yeah. uploading them. Yeah. So we call them like micro-influencers. Right. So you can have your influencers, you know, your Kardashians of the world, but mm -hmm. the micro influencers tend to actually have a high degree of influence in their own fields, which actually makes them much more appealing to a Actually, you do them a disservice in some ways. But I mean, they're micro in that their fame is confined to a very specific group. Yeah. But... Having said that, I mean, the audience sizes, uh, you know, among YouTube followers, for example, yeah. or Snapchat, I mean, they, you know, 100,000 is an interesting audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, should, we shouldn't forget this. A million is a, you know, I mean, there are TV channels which would be ecstatic at having a million, a million yeah, yeah. viewers nowadays. This isn't 1971 where, um, you know, we, I, I think when I was a child, you had one commercial TV channel, which was ITV. This is before Channel 4 came along. And... 
You you don't remember this, neither of you. Actually, I'm 50 tomorrow. Of course, I remember. <laughs> uh, in which case, I I, I correct that. <laughs> well, you seem to have discovered the uh, secret of eternal youth somehow. Thanks very um, much, Rory. But um, you you must remember that you know a program like Three Two One, mm-hmm. which was the most extraordinarily incomprehensible dross, that would have an audience routinely of 22 million. There were 22 million people on a Saturday evening who had so. nothing better to do than to watch a completely incomprehensible game show. Yes. Nowadays, you know. You know, there are exceptions. There are kind of vast global phenomena and there are massive sporting events. Mm. But by and large, Micro is probably doing yourself a disservice. Now, what's certainly true is that most of the advertising clients you talk to won't have heard of them. Yeah. Um, their children will. And I, yeah. I occasionally meet people like this and I go, well, I'm, you know, I go home to my twin daughters who are 15 and go, you know, I met so-and-so today and I think it was a you know, mildly interesting encounter and they're kind of ecstatic about it and go, why didn't you take selfies, yeah, yeah, yeah. autographs, yes, et cetera. Yes. So, I mean, one of the strange attributes of the internet is a kind of micro-fame which is, you know, a very, very intense relationship which is, as you said, has great influence in a smaller, not particularly small, but tightly defined group. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if that group has a high level of coincidence with the people you're trying to reach as yeah, a marketer... it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. So, Rory, I'm thinking of David Ogilvy, and a little earlier you suggested that if he were still here today, he would definitely have understood and seized the opportunity for using the internet. Yeah. Is the billboard and TV campaign dead in some ways compared to the Mad Men days? Now, this is why I'm going to issue a caveat here. There's a very, very strong tendency in most people to say X is dead, the future is Y. Mm. I mean, there are things that die. Um, When did you last receive a fax? In my entire working life, I received one telex and sent one telex. Mm. I don't think that's going to change. I don't think anybody's going to send me a telex in the future or whatever. Yes. Um, so things do die. Most of the time, you know, cinema doesn't kill theatre, mm-hmm. um, television doesn't kill cinema. What happens is different things just develop a different role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you might argue the invention of photography, in a way, created abstract art because there was now no point in using paint to depict reality. Really? Yes. But paint could do something that photography at, the, at that stage mm-hmm. couldn't. So the other point is, I think, that... It depends, obviously, first of all, who the advertiser is. You know, successful marketing is very context-specific. There's also a role to it, um, which I call peacock's tail advertising, which is there are certain messages which are most convincing when they appear in large public places in Mm. known-to-be-expensive media. Now... To believe me in this, it sounds terribly self-interested for an advertising person to say a large part of advertising works because it's expensive. But there's a certain truth, which is we instinctively decode messages, not just on what they ostensibly contain, but in the difficulty of generating them and the cost of transmission. So I'll give you a very simple real-world example. If you are invited to two weddings on the same weekend, Mm -hmm. and the wording for a wedding invitation is standard, you know, the parents of X, Y invite you to. Now, if one of those invitations arrived on a card with gilt edges in a handwritten envelope with a stamp, and the other one arrived by email, Mm -hmm. they'd both say the same thing ostensibly, but you'd go to the first one. Good analogy. OK, so, I mean, our brains aren't haven't evolved to take communication literally. We look at what sort of skin in the game the communicator has. Now, if you make a promise, as you do when you get married, fun enough, to a large group of people simultaneously in a public place, yes. it's a more confident 
promise than one you make, by the way, uh, you know, sotto voce, uh, to, you know, to someone in private. It's a different kind of communication. And so there will always remain, I mean, the most extreme level of that, which is which says nothing at all except we've got a pot of money, sports sponsorship. Yeah. So if you would, Tim, give us an example of a case study of the way that a brand has used your platform. And maybe you've got a favourite example and, and a bit of content being generated. Yeah. So um, one of our main clients, which was a highly surprising one, was the world-renowned football star Ronaldinho. For like two, three, four years, he was pretty much deemed as the greatest footballer ever, right? And he, as a brand, essentially came to us and he wanted to sell. I don't know if you remember last year, these segways oh, were yes. all the rage, completely all the rage. And he brought out 5,000 of these and he said that he wanted us to help him to like distribute it. So he yeah. said, All right, you know, sure. How did he find you? I have no clue. Okay, it, that would be my first question. It was so random. I think that at that time that we'd done a decent bit of PR that he found us, right? But actually, the kind of conversation there was so random. So I got this email and this person said, hey, can we talk on Skype? I have a client who I think you'd be keen on. I'm thinking, why the hell don't you tell us the client in, in the email? But I said, okay, fine. I kind of take the Skype call and he says, hey, um, are you sitting well and i said that's such a random question to start asking so I'm like are you sitting well and i said yeah and then i and, and then i asked him you know are you sitting well so we spent like the first five minutes just talking about how well each other was like like sitting and then he said hey um yeah so the person that i want you to work with is Ronaldinho. And did you know who that was? Of course I know that well, was. Well, you say, of course. If that had I mean, come to me, I'd go, oh, I think I, I mean, know that now. This is a guy who, I, from when I was eight or something, I've just been thinking, Jesus Christ, like, oh, this guy's amazing. So he wanted to sell these Segways. So we did an interesting campaign where we got some influencers together, particularly this 17-year-old football YouTuber who kind of was able to do freestyle tricks on the Segway. And so we said, tell you what, how about we do this interesting thing where this 17-year-old goes on this kind of like secret mission and then suddenly from nowhere comes Ronaldinho and then they start doing tricks on the Segway. And so we did that. So we went up to Manchester. They put us in, you know, really nice hotels, gave us like tickets to the football game that was there because he actually came for David Beckham's charity match. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they gave us tickets, everything was really cool. And we did it. And now that I think is just about three million views or something like that. So that completely sold out and everything else of the segues, which was pretty amazing. But the second one, which I think is quite interesting and that was more real, um, mm -hmm. is, is, is um, Nickelodeon. So Nickelodeon wanted to launch a TV show. The TV show was called 100 Things to Do Before High School. And we did an interesting thing where we got a bunch of influencers together to create one of the 100 things they wish they had done before high school. So you had people like creating their own indoor tents. You had people, you know, teaching how to make the world's biggest pizzas, a bunch of like crazy stuff. So it's basically a bucket list for 10 year olds. Lovely. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, that. you know, spread that out to the audience and that led to the show i think the premiere of the show being one of the most um watched as well so like that kind of cool content is wow we do. i mean those are amazing examples um rory i'm going to ask you the same question a favorite advert or campaign from your career that really illustrates how to communicate a message maybe it was innovative maybe it's something a business owner listening today could learn from i'll tell you the strangest example and it's not an advertisement it's just an extraordinary bit of communication which has magical powers 
If you go to Wagamama, mm. if you go in and sit down, they'll probably come and say to you, have you ever been to Wagamama before? You always think it's a slightly weird question. But for why, people why listening in other parts of the world, we should say that Wagamama is quite a fast food noodley it, it, sort it, of it's place. A kind of, it's a kind of semi sort of, I mean, I, I, I guess it's kind of upmarket quick service restaurant with a Japanese sort of noodle theme. And they'll always ask you when you go in, have you ever been to Wagamama before? And if you say no, which would be a lie in my case, <laughs> they explain to you, they go through this little ring and they explain that it's just like an authentic Japanese noodle bar, which means the food arrives straight to your table, fresh from the kitchen as soon as it's ready, which does mean that it may not arrive in the order you expect. Mm. Now, the interesting thing that occurred to me about that is it's actually a fantastic... You can't quite call it an ad, but it's an extraordinary bit of communication because if they didn't explain that, mm. half the people who went there for the first time would leave me, oh, the place was absolute rubbish. I ordered this food and it just arrived at random. The people yes. don't know what they're doing. Whereas what you do with that tiny little sentence is you just reframe it in the brain. It's kind of mental alchemy mm. where people go, oh, look, it's fresh from the kitchen, just yes. like a... Now, I'm not sure that's not, true. There's no bloody system no, here. No, 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 no. You know, these people are just total incompetence. <laughs> in fact, I feel personally affronted because they can't even bother to bring me my food in the right order. You go, oh, it's just like a Japanese noodle bar. And anything that's Japanese will basically accept a very high level of weirdness. Won't we? <laughs> you tell us something's Japanese, we go, yeah, it's going to be weird, that's fine. And so a similar one was... Um, Landing on a plane, I'm just fascinated now with the potential for little, tiny little interventions that cost nothing, that just change the rules of the game. So I land on a plane. Whenever you land on a plane in an airport like Gatwick or Heathrow and you don't get an air bridge, you have a bus, mm. you're always kind of pissed off, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah, they couldn't even get me on a bloody bridge. We couldn't get on <laughs> bus, right? And you always say, oh, Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh dear, it's a bus. You go, okay. Now, the strangest thing was I've had this, oh God, it's a bloody bus thing for ages. And then suddenly this pilot, who must have been some sort of psychological genius, just said, he said, I've got some bad news and good news. Bad news is we can't get an air bridge, but the good news is the bus takes you all the way to passport control, the door next to passport control, so you won't have far to walk. Mm. I suddenly thought, hold on, that's always true with a bus. But no one had ever pointed out to me there was an upside to the bus, which is if you're at a large airport and you've got heavy bags, you can end up walking two-thirds of a mile. And the second you start saying, actually, there's something good about the bus, mm. we entirely change our mind, and instead of being angry, we go, oh, actually, I'm quite grateful for this thing. So you can... What I find really interesting, and the best advertising does this, is... It takes, without changing objective reality at all, it completely changes the way we value something. So you have just illustrated and crystallised how an ad campaign can reframe yeah. things. Um, genius. And you haven't told us one single campaign that you did. You've just taught us how you think uh, and how your well, mind has influenced certain campaigns. Well, I, I can give examples of things I have done, which I've been very, very proud of. Give which, us one example. But, but, I mean, one of the most interesting things was a campaign I did quite a few years ago, but I'm still fond of for American Express, which was large chains of businesses didn't want to accept the American Express card. And we realised that the only way, this is about the art of persuasion again, mm. if you want to change someone's mind, it's no good going up to them and telling them the opposite of what they already believe. One way to do it is to replay what they already believe and then gently go about contradicting it. It's rather like turning a ship around, mm -hmm. you know. And so what we did was we sent them a copy of uh, Pride and Prejudice and inside there was just standard, one complete hardback copy of the Jane Austen book. And there was just a little bookmark which just said 10 reasons why you're reluctant to accept the American Express card. 
And then three days later, I think they got a copy of Sense and Sensibility and it just said, uh, reasons to reconsider. And then two <laughs> days after that, they got a copy of Persuasion <laughs> and it said why it's worth meeting a representative. Yeah. And so the business, but what I liked about that was not only it was kind of cute, but it was the fact that acknowledging where someone is is the best place to start if you want to change their mind. So, Tim, let me come back to you. You're obviously onto something massive with fan bites. Rory says so yeah. too. Uh, you've yeah. got big name clients. We've mentioned some of them already. Uh, Adidas. Do you say Adidas or Adidas, by the way? I say Adidas. Yeah, sort of you're halfway in between. Um, Disney, <laughs> Nickelodeon, and um, people are taking you very seriously. Let's Good. rewind... How did you build your own brand? Was there a eureka moment when you thought, right, I'm, I need to really seize this idea and build a reputation for fan bites? <laughs> so this is actually something that I've been thinking a lot about. And it's quite interesting like that I should be with Rory because I think behavioral economics has also been something that I've been into like quite a bit. You know, I've read all the books, the Nudge, Pretty to be National, Persuasion, all, all those ones. So when it was, was when I realized that in the world, people are being hit by so many things, right? You know, there is so much noise in the world. And the people who tend to win the most are the people who have a unique thing to actually say which is enough to make you think, oh, that's interesting. And I think how we went about it was literally we have a whiteboard in our office and we were like, what do we want people to know us as? And I think for us, my co-founder's background is mechanical engineer from Imperial. I'm a computer science from Warwick and my co-founder is computer science from Nottingham, right? So we're like, kind of uber geeks, uber nerds, right? You're neeks. You're a cross between a neeks, nerd and a geek. geek. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of thought, you know what? A lot of marketing, and I don't know if Rory will agree with this, but typically it's very fuzzy. It's very, you know, it's just, you know, make people feel good and all that stuff, right? And we're like, let's actually come in with just software. Let's come in as like the geeks who will make it all about numbers as opposed to just the content. So that's how we thought about it. And um, so far, so good. I mean, the reason why we've been able to run so many clients, you know, some we haven't mentioned, you know, the some banks work with us, people like GoPro or work with us the reason why GoPro they, being the little yeah, cameras yeah, yeah, that GoPro. you wear yeah and it's all because we understand the technology part of it and we thought no one else can understand that yeah people can come in and give all that kind of you know hoo-ha 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 but if you're like <laughs> how do we kind of precisely target through tech you come to us so that's really how we feel about it I think it. GoPro is a very interesting example where what you offer is perfect because it's a single brand yeah. but it has a whole variety of what I, well, I guess a, a special user community, yeah. special interest community. So you presumably have the dangerous sports people. Yeah. You have the drone community. Yeah. Who are, you have Jeremy Vine. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. The, so, so the super interesting thing about GoPro is when they came to us, they didn't come to us to target their kind of conventional audience. They said that everyone knows us for these kind of crazy stunts to do: wakeboarding, right. snowboarding, you know, jumping off a cliff and all that stuff. Right? We want to like normalize our brand, and we actually. So how want, did you do that? So they said they want to engage with these kind of like young males, normalize it. So we thought, what is the most normalized activity young males do? Football, right? So we came up with a whole thing around, you know, GoPro being the helper when a young male is trying to learn like football tricks. So we had people doing like 
bin shot from like really far away. They like hit the wall, which hit another wall, then end up in a bin. So like doing all these kind of outrageous kind of stuff, but it was something that the normal 15, 16 year old could do could, themselves. Yeah, could. Or aspire to. Yeah, could aspire to. Rather and, than base jumping. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to base jumping. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that, yeah. that is fascinating. But how do you make your money? How do you make your money? Yeah. Um, it's a secret. No, um, we're a non-profit. No, uh, um, no, we, we, we just, just give all our money. So, Tom Lucky, Nikki Vendi, how do you make your money? <laughs> no, so brands pay us, right? So brands pay us in one of two ways. They either pay a subscription fee for our software. Um, and if you're a larger brand, you pay us kind of on a campaign by campaign basis. Yeah. So how much of your business relies on technology versus consultation led time? Um... I'd say we're primarily tech-driven. We are super scalable because we're a tech company. So I'd say 90% of it is like pure tech. You're very lucky in that respect in that you've cracked the thing by software subscription, which the advertising industry has never cracked, which is how to make money while you're asleep. Ah, yeah. yes, um, exactly. Yeah. Everything we do is more or less charged by the hour, so, yeah. um, uh, which is all very well, except you have to keep working in order to make money. Um, yeah. So, Rory, um, your company... Yeah. must have embraced new technology. Uh, are you using any services like this to understand where your reach could be? Where does Ogilvy and Mather stand now? Well, we, ho- we hosted a conference this morning with uh, Isbar, um, including, for example, the uh, YouTuber um, Ben Phillips, who's a very, very funny uh, Welsh prankster yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. And so, no, I mean, uh, interesting, I was going to ask the question, do you have agencies among your subscribers? Yeah. You yeah, so yeah. literally, agencies are the guys who so OMD, all those guys use our software day in and day out in order to power their campaign. And then, do you have a kind of back end where you introduce people to the people they want to talk to? Uh, yeah, so they do all of that on the site. So they find the best people on the site, they can collaborate with you know people like Ben Phillips, etc., on the site, and then they can measure and optimize pretty much everything on the site. So a, for an agency is absolutely perfect, right? And so, I mean, do you also charge the influencers for being on the no, platform? No, you don't, no. because you could, you might be able to. Oh, you so that's that's where you see a gap in the market. Uh, I mean, you might eventually. I mean, if you can achieve a kind of dominant position, you might be able to become one of these magical, two, what you might call double-faced businesses. Mm. Um, I mean, Uber would be a classic case yeah. where you're a kind of intermediary. So the drivers, if you can, the if you can be a kind of automated intermediary yeah, where yeah. you control the relationship between the potential passengers and the potential yeah, drivers. Yeah. Maybe Tim likes paying life forward and he isn't greedy. No, I, no, I, I, I was. I, I mean, it is a kind of. I mean, the problem with those businesses is they're kind of a natural monopoly, mm. and we we don't really know in terms of regulation or economics how to handle them. Actually, but I was I was saying that that's the ultimate dream, I guess. Could but be. Um, I mean, that's another interesting question. I mean, one thing I would recommend is working with conventional agencies quite a bit. Yeah, and the reason they're valuable. Uh, in this, even if they're quite Luddite. I mean, I'm distancing Ogilvy from some of the advertising uh, uh, industry here. <laughs> but even the more Luddite ones are useful partners to you on the grounds that, for example, 
they know all their clients, and they but particularly they know the moments at which their clients might yeah. be interested in doing something yeah. like this. So great, you know, one of the problems of trying to sell direct rather than through an agency is you spend a lot of the time probably selling to the right people but at the wrong moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the great thing about making yourself known with agencies is you'll go and give a presentation and nothing will happen for six months. And you'll think, well, yeah. that was a complete waste of time, wasn't it? And then a phone call comes in yeah. saying, I remember you coming in six months ago. Mm. Funnily enough, we've got something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... There is the value of intermediaries in just saving a hell of a lot of kind of tire kicking and, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. door knocking generally. Tim, a little bit about the hurdles that you've faced. It can't all have been that easy. Three businesses I know, and you set up your first business at 14. Examples of some of the hurdles and how you've straddled them. So, as a company, you know, you live and die by the customers, right? And I think at the beginning, finding our first customers. That was like such a hurdle because explaining to them, especially with fanbase at the beginning, explaining to them what we do was really hard yeah. because they're so used to the kind of, hey, let's, you know, send a bunch of money on Facebook or Google, etc. So trying to explain to them was like super hard. How we overcome that was we took a fair bit of risks. At the beginning, we kind of like guarantee them a certain result, but then unknowingly to them, we're like losing out on money or it's a loss making deal for us etc so i think at the beginning it was like finding and explaining to customers what you did eventually kind of the market took on and people start to understand what we do right secondly is managing your own like psychology as a founder as well when you're surrounded by you know you know competitors or like your friends who are like everyone is really engrossed in this thing especially in tech everyone is really engrossed in it it's mm. kind of like go big or go home that kind of go hard or go hard yeah right so managing your psychology how like, do you mean managing your psychology so, like having another life as well or? yeah so like i haven't been in a relationship for like three years oh. and like and like or like just being able to be like okay um guys you know this month is looking a bit rocky. We only have two months of runway left. Um, but I, as a founder, if I look stressed, if I look, oh my gosh, the team is going to also feel fairly frantic as well, right? So being able to manage your own psychology and maintain your mindset, I kind of draw the analogy of being like a duck, right? So they look really calm. They're gliding. Right? They're just gliding across. Underneath. But underneath, they're just like scampering, right? Yeah. And I find that to be the case for like most founders. Do you take time out, Tim? Um, I like to think so. What do you do in your time out? <laughs> I have a list of these, I think it's like 50 or so things. I call them flinches. They're inspired by a book I read called The Flinch, I think. And it's essentially doing stuff that you otherwise wouldn't do because your brain tells you it's like too complex or too hard or something. Give me an example. So like I've been taking salsa a lot. Now I'm like pretty good at salsa. I mean, what do you do to relax, not to expand all your skill sets? Or is that the same thing for you? Yeah, I think, I, I think... I think that's it. I and wanted you to say, ah, oh, I sit on the sofa, I get a great big box nah. of chocolates and I watch, you know, I'm, reality TV. Nah, I'm 21. I can do that when I'm like 50 or something, right? So, <laughs> but, but I think the flinches, third... Flinches though, I love this. Flinches. Yeah, I love the idea of flinches. But I think the third thing that definitely a hurdle, I say, when I call myself CEO, mm. you know, people call like chief executive officer. I think I've suddenly changed it now to be like chief empathy officer. Because like literally... 
most of my time is made is making sure the other people are doing their job fairly well and they're actually enjoying themselves right and i think that's the biggest hurdle especially when you like transition from like early stage to like scaling is the idea that you have to do everything yourself having to take that out is super super hard to do i um, absolutely so love that phrase chief yeah. empathy officer so that's you're very perspicacious Rory, you know, when there's a great television ad and many of us in our lifetimes will have seminal pieces of television advertising logged and seared onto our brains. Yeah, there's less of it than there used to be. That's what I was going to to ask you. You hate to say it, but I mean, what is it that's changed then? Is Um, it that we consume television more... More sporadically and in different ways. What is it? Crikey! I mean, there are multiple reasons. I think. I mean, I, I mean, conservatism is probably part of it. There are some people who have the theory that there was a, a brief, particularly magical period for television advertising when you might have spent half a million pounds on thirty or sixty seconds of footage, like the Guinness ad. And so you could do something. Now, what then happened with technology is you could afford to do that with a whole feature film. Mm. So you could lavish an amount of attention on every second in a 30-second TV commercial, which was unaffordable and impossible to do for a, uh, uh, let's say, a feature film or a television programme. And then the technology essentially levelled the playing field a bit, so it's slightly difficult to do that kind of wow. Other more prosaic reasons why there isn't as much good TV anymore... One of them would be that if you look at the categories which advertise, a lot of the categories which produce the most interesting and the most humorous work, which would have been, I probably hate to admit it, tobacco, I mean, Hamlet, for example, back in the day, beer in particular, mm-hmm. are much, much smaller advertisers than they used to be. I mean, Ogilvy does the Cronenberg work, with uh, the most recent one being with the Alsatian, of course, and Eric Cantona. Now, that's a you know, a highly enjoyable beer campaign. Now, there would have been 15 of those in my childhood. There would have been 15 major beers all advertising, not all of them well. Yes, but, but they'd have been they would there. have been there. Now, what if you look at it, a far greater proportion of ad spend... Um, well, I mean, I suppose they're categories which are slightly bought, bought more out of necessity than out of fun. But there are always lone and interesting standout successes. The reason people are reluctant to advertise within a client organisation is really kind of stage fright. It's fear that the chief executive doesn't like the ad and shouts at them. It's fear that, you know, the ad creates a scandal. It's fear of what could go wrong. Right. Now, what the digital world does present these people with is an opportunity where you can keep your head below the parapet but keep on dicking around with things like remarketing and little things like programmatic and farting around with a few metrics to improve one. And at that level... You've justified your job through a series of incremental improvements, but sometimes the job of a marketer isn't just incremental tinkering, it's to do something heroic and distinctive that makes your brand distinctive from other brands. Well, that leads me into this question, and it is more generally speaking, Rory. In terms of advice for entrepreneurs listening to this podcast right now, what would you say are the main mistakes that young brands make in terms of communicating with their audiences, with their client bases? I mean, there are loads of mistakes, I suppose. I mean, as I said, not doing it is probably the biggest mistake. First of all, people can't buy things they've never heard of mm-hmm. at the most basic level. At the next level, people trust things the more they hear about them. We're a social species. I mean, I give this as a very strong example. If you take those cases of those hoverboards or sort of uh, yeah. uh, handle the segues that yes. burst onto the scene last Christmas, 
if one of them had been made by a reputable, highly advertised brand like Samsung or Panasonic or Toshiba, we all would have bought it like a shot. Mm. None of them had a recognisable brand name on. None of them was properly advertised. They just appeared in things like weird market strange. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. apart from okay. his campaign with Ronaldinho. Apart, well, no, no, that's the apart one I would have bought. <laughs> was it, that wasn't the one that caught fire, I'm hoping. Anyway, that wasn't the one. No, that no, no, fire, exactly. Thankfully. But the, the interesting problem was we didn't know when one caught fire, we didn't even know which type to avoid <laughs> right. because they were all kind of generic. Yeah. And they failed to realise that without the brand feedback loop, consumers don't know how to reward good quality yeah. and yes. punish bad quality. Yes. But now I think what's really important if you're a tech company is being just distinctive and very, very clearly branded so that you effectively achieve a high incidence of kind of easy mental fluency yeah. in processing that brand. You know, just as you know, we find frequently used words easier to process. If you can achieve that, then that's a big first step. It's not the only step. There are loads and loads of other things you have to do in marketing. Um, also look at marketing it from the opposite way. Don't just say we're here to persuade people to buy this thing. Ask the opposite question, which is what are the barriers to people buying this? It's almost yeah. like the theory of constraints. I, I always say this of every question, always look at it backwards. Is the problem here that people don't want it enough? Or is actually, is it a case where people really like it and it's a great idea, but they're lacking some piece of information or some mechanism to allow them to buy it? And so I think there's something really interesting there looking at things backwards, you know. Yeah, so I think I'd agree to quite a large extent. I think the biggest problem is so like earlier this week, I, I had a meeting with an insurance firm and they're trying to engage with a millennial audience, right? Sat with them for about an hour. The first 30 minutes were ideas where they were just talking about themselves. So I want us to be like this. I want us to be like this. I want us to be like this. And... I just sat there in silence for like half an hour. Didn't say a single thing. I just wrote down some notes. I said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they said, so what do you think? And I just crossed out everything I'd written on the sheet of paper. I said, this is not about you. Like, this yep. is not about you at all. And I think even in this digital age... That basic thing is being overlooked. That basic thing is there. Like, it's, uh, you know, we are this, we are that. We are the best in this. We are the best in that. We are the best in this. And then what happens is that you essentially, it essentially just becomes a contest where all you're just doing is with your other competitors. We, 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 when what you should be focusing on is the actual consumer and how do you actually kind of make them Give feel. them something. And yes. I think that's like the biggest problem, like from insurance agencies to startups to young companies, like it's not about you, it's about the audience. Very, very interesting point. You're listening to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm here with Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman at Ogilvy & Mather Group, the global advertising agency, and Timothy Armu, one of the people behind Fanbytes. He's a young entrepreneur connecting brands to influencers online. So, Tim, what's next for Fanbytes? How do you see your business growing over the next few years? So, earlier today, just confirmed an investment deal. So, we just raised... Uh, decent chunk of money. What's it going to enable you to do? So um, I think the big push here is we have the opportunity to become the MTV for the Snapchat generation. Um, I think there's a really big opportunity there to help brands be able to engage with people over kind of short form video. I'll keep it like fairly 
cryptic. But I think um, <laughs> I'll keep it fairly cryptic. Um, but I think there's also a larger opportunity here to make this influencer thing as easy as buying an ad on Facebook or Google. That kind of ease of use is still isn't there in the influencer marketing world. It's still a fairly manual process. I have this sort of dystopian sense that we're all going to be able to be commodified at some point if we if we are on Snapchat. Is that a valid fear? Well, I... I'd say you'd be marketed to, regardless of whatever platform you're on. If there's an audience, marketers will find a way to reach you. (laughs) So, you know, people like Rory, people like myself would end up making you feel commodified, but, you know... Someone's That's okay. You know. There is an occasional saying, isn't there? If you're not paying for the product, yeah. it's because you are the product. You are the product, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I remember I get that. I, I remember this sketch and someone <laughs> someone's talking about why don't we pay for Facebook? And it was like, well, because, you know, you're the product, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, like yeah. that. Yeah. Rory, from a master of the industry to someone fairly new, have you got any big tips that you would give Tim in terms of growing his business? Um, I mean, I think you would in many ways as a software product you've got a better model than the advertising agency right. has which is when we're paid by the hour it's a deeply flawed uh, it's probably the the least bad of all possible ways of paying for agencies but it's still not very good so your model <laughs> I, I rather envy i think the way you've done it uh, so uh, i can't give you advice on that i mean definitely work with agency partners to some extent uh, the other thing that would interest me is are there particular areas where it's very clear there's a kind of i mean as we often say, there's always a risk. Just because there's a gap in the market doesn't mean there's a market in the gap. But are there areas of particular <laughs> where there's a missing influencer, where you could actually change the, you know, almost create uh, YouTubers yeah. on topics where none exist? That would be an interesting All oh, right, question. that's interesting. So we have looked at that in terms of from a medium point of view. So i.e., you know, what's going on with... Periscope, what's going on with Meerkat, what's going on with these new platforms. I don't think we've looked at it from a verticals perspective. No, interesting. Very interesting. I think not even we as fanboys, but just in general, people are so used to know, you know, fashion, beauty, gaming, yeah. lifestyle. But you're right. You know, there is an opportunity to do things in people who are very influential in the world of, you know, news and Medicine. gadgets. Medicine, like those kind of niche. I mean, it would be interesting. I mean, okay, you're never going to be a youth financial services influencer. But there is, I suppose, the interesting question, which I suppose if I had words to say to my 25 year old self. Yes. Okay. It would be basically, look, this whole category is boring. There are a load of crooks. You can't trust anybody. But at the same time, just put some money away regularly every month if you possibly yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't really matter whether it's an ISA. You know, don't, don't allow the complexity and tedium of the category to prevent you from just putting some money away because 30 years on from that, you'll be really glad you did. Yeah. And so you know, may, maybe actually the way to get that message across is just really obliquely with, you know... Um, uh, you know, uh, in other words, you're, you're never going to get a... I, I don't think you're ever going to get a kind of financial services YouTuber for the uh, the millennial generation just yet. Who knows? But who knows? A young a young Martin Lewis. Sure, I mean... Who speaks a little I mean, slower. I mean, actually... If you... <laughs> actually, well, come to think of it also, I mean, the the media world, and this is famously true of Hollywood, but it's also true of everything else, mm. It it's so unpredictable. I mean, who the hell? Everybody last night is watching this fucking programme about cake. Right, I now, wasn't. No, I can't stand it either. Can you not stand? <laughs> no, it? I'm so glad. 
No. no, I don't watch Strictly Come Prancing no, either. Can't watch any of those no, things. Good. I'm glad to hear this. But what's so strange about it? If you'd gone into the BBC 15 years ago or 10 years ago and said, look, the big thing is really going to be cake-baking competitions, <laughs> yeah. you'd have been shown the door, right? Yeah. You know, there must have been five or six people who spent millions on a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, about 15 years ago. And the biggest film of the year was a bloody documentary about penguins. Yes. So actually, there's always scope for just trying something really damn really weird. Different, because yeah. let's face it, no one knows what's going on. Yeah. Generally speaking, from both of you, yeah. top tips to entrepreneurs listening for building a brand reputation and selling. Uh, Rory first. Rory first. Oof. Um... If you want to build a brand, the first requirement of any brand isn't necessarily to be brilliant. It's don't do or produce anything that's shit. Yeah. That's what I call the Samsung approach, OK? You know, Samsung, you know, I mean, Sony produces better things in some categories. The magic of the Samsung brand is it's what's called satisficing in the decision yeah. services. If you buy anything with Samsung on, it'll be pretty good. OK. What about your advice, Tim? So I think mine is different to what Roy said Good. almost the complete opposite okay come on you should I'd be brilliant at one no so, so kind of I think that you should be so in the office we have this literally big thing on our whiteboard which just says be remarkable okay. so the whole point is whatever you do a campaign or whatever you do it has to be worthy of a remark right it has to be oh that's interesting, or, oh, that's bad. Because, again, I go back to his earlier point of there's so much noise in the world mm. that you want to do remarkable stuff. And I think that has always been the thing we have taken in terms of building a brand. You know, it's remarkable that I started my first company at 14. It's, like, yeah. remarkable that I sold a media company at 17. It's kind of all these things are, like, It's actually worth precocious. <laughs> so it's all things that you can See, actually I'm, I'm refine that yeah, I mean, e even if you can't be remarkable be distinctive yeah. okay yeah. yeah so you know we can't always be remarkable at everything we do you know, which I mean we can't always make history with everything we do but if you simply do it in a way that's v even just visually distinctive yeah that's interesting distinctive yeah. in tone of voice yeah you know whatever it may be how, in your story is, is automatic distinctiveness yeah Rory, fair to say you're appreciated worldwide as a thinker. If any of you haven't seen Rory's... Have you got three TED Talks? I think I watched yeah, three. Three or four, yeah. Right. Um, so he's I a great thinker. I saw TED Talk last week. Like, I... Just I by it. coincidence? Yeah, literally. You didn't know that you were random, going to meet him? Like, like, I've actually read so much of your stuff that when I got the email from Annie, I was like, wait, wait, wait what? Really? I was like, See, no way. you it's, put it out it, there it, in it, the it, universe. Yeah. It's very strange doing a TED Talk because it's like micro-fame. So what happens is no one knows who you are. You just wander around the place. And then what happens is you're at Copenhagen Airport and the guy who's selling you headphones goes, are you Rory Sutherland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's it's a completely cool. weird, like, globally distributed kind of shotgun pellet micro-fame. Very strange. But right? it's, what's wonderful is that you're a champion of something that uh, Tim picked up on earlier, behavioural economics, yep. which is a field of study essentially all about trying to use a deeper understanding of human behaviour and psychology to business advantage, we think. Um, and you've talked in the past about how important perception and perspective is. I know it's a huge subject. We're running out of time in terms of this podcast. But if we were to scratch the surface, is there an example of this that an entrepreneur or a business person listening could immediately apply to some of his thinking? 
Yeah. Um, basically, it's the I call it the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. And in order to make economics look like a science and pretend it's mathematical, economists have made grotesque assumptions about the kind of brains humans have uh, and the way they actually operate those brains to make decisions. I'll give you a totally childish story just to give you an example. What is fascinating about this is once you start to think like a behavioural economist or behavioural scientist... You can ask questions about enormous things. So I would argue that the £40 billion a year the UK government spends on uh, tax rebates for pension contributions, most of that money is completely wasted. You could give half of it to the NHS and you would see no difference in the rate of pension saving. OK, so I'm, I can make that claim about a 20 million expense. I can also say, you know, just to give you an example with my wife, my, what my wife might occasionally do is come to me while I'm watching television and don't have any shoes on and say, can you take the rubbish out? Now, the behavioural scientist solution to that problem is, no, no, don't say anything to me. Just leave the rubbish bag mm. by the front door and the next time I'm walking outside with my shoes on, I'll automatically, without thinking, pick it up and take it to the bins. Yeah, yeah. it, it's rather like going with the flow. It's going with the grain of innate human behaviour right. rather than cutting against the grain. So, you know, it, what's fascinating about this is it, it's creatively liberating and it's also extraordinarily scalable. You can take the same approaches, you can take them to £20 billion problems, why HS2 is a terrible idea, which I don't have enough time to elucidate on. You can talk about £60 billion problems, but you can also talk about how to get your rubbish taken out better. Right. So I, I love the scalability of it all. Well, and, and, and also throughout the podcast, you've given us such great examples of reframing thinking. Sorry, Tim, go ahead. Yeah, because, you know, I'm obviously not as into behavioural economics as... Rory, but I do also kind of understand quite a bit about it. And one of the key things which I've seen just work, and if I could offer advice to anyone, is this law of reciprocity. Yeah. So, like, you know, if you want something from someone, do a bit for them, yeah. and then they'll kind of almost feel obliged um, to, to help out. And I think for brands, for businesses, for entrepreneurs, when a lot of them operates in this kind of take 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 yeah. mindset and what's super interesting is any business any business at all can almost kind of give 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 a lot and then at the fifth or sixth time then you know say hey how about this so like one thing we did we created a simple pdf and i wrote it and it was called the no bullshit guide to influencer marketing Oh. And it was free. I said, you know, come on the site, take it free, right? And what happens is so many people sign up for that and we fed them more content. Guys, this is how to do this, this is how to do it. And then when we were like, hey, so we've just kind of brought out this new product. Suddenly people just came to us, right? Goodwill. And it was almost because they were like, these guys have given me so much content. Yeah. These guys really like yeah. care about me so much that, you know what, I must feel obliged, you know, spend like, you know, 10k 15k with them um so um yeah i think in any business whether you're an insurance whether you're a game or whatever that law of reciprocity i cannot overestimate how like incredibly powerful that is i i am Completely i'm agree. i have so enjoyed being in a studio with the two of you such fine minds such incredible thinking i've learned so much and that's nearly it for this podcast um a couple of questions tim what do you think the next exciting thing or tool will be in the advertising world. Fan bite. Yay. No. Uh, no. You, you can keep Sorry. it there. Um, <laughs> I would say, yeah, fan bite. No, I'd say that there is a massive opportunity in the kind of native 
mobile ad space. I don't think anyone has quite cracked how to really engage with consumers on video, mobile video. I think there's like a huge opportunity there. Um, we might be lingering in there. You never know. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And Rory, if you were to rip the industry up, rip the whole idea of advertising up and start again, what would you do? Um, I'd refound it where we're less preoccupied with the media we use and more preoccupied with what you might call the unchanging man, understanding the science of human behaviour and human decision processes. And I think that what happened with the industry was that you had people who made TV advertisements and press advertisements, you had people who did direct mail, you had people who did PR, and at the time, the business oriented and aligned itself alongside your media and I think now the business, there are so many media mm. that you can't afford simply to become a media specialist. You have to become a human psychology specialist first and then worry about the media second. That's very interesting. Thank you both. Go back to so basics. Very, back to, to basics. basics. Yeah. Thank you so much. And may you both go from strength to strength. What an yeah. honour this was. Thank you very Thank much you. indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. The Voom Podcast is a Pixu production for Virgin Media Business. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review to let us know what you think. If you want more entrepreneurial content, articles and podcasts, head to virgin.com. And if you fancy spending a day with the likes of Richard Branson and the people who make innovative businesses like Red Bull, Google and Blockchain Tick... Then the next Virgin Disruptors event is the place for you. It takes place in London on October the 3rd. And to find out more and get your ticket, head over to virgin.com slash disruptors. We'll be back for season two of the Voom podcast in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, from me, Nick. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Beatty. Goodbye.